they would say like if you're struggling with something why don't we work on that as opposed to playing which i think that just creates children who are always working and don't know how to rest and to like rejuvenate because i feel like i'm always going and I, i struggle to sometimes just take time to rest and to do other things that aren't about being productive this is united states of race personal stories of how our earliest memories determine a lifetime of relationships. I'm your host, D.B. Crema. Today we're joined by Kyra Asabe-Bonzu, who works on all things that highlight the lives and stories of underrepresented communities, thus advocating for those who do not have a voice or a platform. She has worked on projects that support marginalized communities across the globe, from students under the caste system in Bihar, India, to Syrian refugees' relocation in Argentina. She's an urbanist and is passionate about immigration and migration justice. So much so, she has her own podcast called No Country for Moving, check it out, where she discusses sociocultural issues of immigrants. And personally, as the child of immigrants, my conversation with Kyra really resonated with me because So many of us first-generation Americans have a shared experience of growing up with parents who are not assimilated to the American parenting system. It often creates in us, all of us, this constant feeling like we're never doing enough. And as Kyra talks about, it makes it hard for us to know how to press pause on the always producing button. It makes it hard to just rest. Well, I treated myself to a spa day recently. You see, I'm going back to a full-time job and I wanted to enjoy some dedicated relaxed time before it starts. So when I checked in for my appointment, I was ready to unplug. And the spa attendant gave me a tour of the facilities and in the pool area, she pointed to a collage of life-sized pictures on a wall, all 50s era smiling and happy bathing beauties. The people in these photos were living their best life. They were sunny and handsome and joyful and slim. And as she swept her hand past the mural, the attendant smiled and said to me, as you try to relax, let these photos remind you of a simpler time. Well, immediately my brain switched back on. Simpler times? Simpler times for some maybe. You see, the photos were full of white people. The people having fun in the photos, the only people having fun, were white. As if people of other races and ethnicities of that era did not frolic and cavort in the sun or at the beach or at the pool. And the implied message was that if you just switch off your thoughts of all your worries of the world, you too can be relaxed and happy. And to be clear, it was a well-intended message and the attendant was just trying to be welcoming and do her job. But I assume it never even occurred to this international hotel chain operating in the Southern city that the mural might be fundamentally lacking. I mean, did they not notice it was all white? And did it not occur to them that not only white people treat themselves to spa days? I mean, it clearly did not occur to them that there was an issue with representation representation matters. But, and I focus here for a moment, it's also a stark reminder that not everyone has the pleasure of just switching off and forgetting about all their woes. During the same era that these photos were taken, among other things, black boys were being publicly lynched for writing kind notes to white girls they were sweet on. 
and slave-like conditions continued in the form of sharecropping on the plantations in the American South, in the fields outside the very city I was standing in. So no, not everyone can remove their worries, hanging them up in the closet for the time being like a robe one wears for the day at the spa. For some, the very fact that there is no representation in this mural is a stark reminder that these woes follow them everywhere. Some, because of their skin color, carry the burden of always acting properly and always being the best, as Kyra and I discuss, and never being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I guess that brings me back to the importance of these conversations, taking the time to hear and understand people's experiences, both their joys and their woes. That can make us all a bit better at practicing empathy and making space and giving grace to our fellow humans who must carry many of their woes on their very skin. So it is my hope that better understanding people's very personal experiences and life realities can be the very thing that creates a world where everyone can frolic in the sun, anywhere, at any time, without exception, without worry. So tell me, when did you first become aware of race? My very first experience would be uh, when I was entering kindergarten. I was a semester late. My my grandmother had come from Ghana to take care of me as she does with all of her grandchildren. And mm -hmm. she was staying with at my family's house and she was adamant that I was fluent in Chui. Um, she was like, this is, you know, the language of your culture. It's very important that you are fluent. Uh, and so she was there kind of, you know, protecting that culture and heritage. And when mm -hmm. I entered my first day of kindergarten, um, was like a whole pomp and circumstance because I was late, uh, not late technically, just starting later than others. And it was already older. I remember my mom and sister driving me there. She walks me down this very long corridor. We pass by these like really Montessori-like <laughs> um, uh, jungle gyms. And mm -hmm. on the left is the after-school daycare center, which would become my home away from home. And, and there's also all these other um, kids running around. Uh, and then mm -hmm. we pass through these two double doors that are carpeted. And um, my sister like has hold been holding my hand the entire time. I walk in to the class with my Barbie pail lunchbox and I I put it away and I like slowly make my way to my teacher's like circle where all the kids are sitting around and I didn't want to sit by myself. So I sat on her lap and I knew that the top of my- On the teacher's lap? On the teacher's lap. Yeah. I sat on the teacher's okay. lap. I was a teacher's lap. <laughs> so I sat on the teacher's lap and I knew that the top of my like little puff was hitting like the bottom of her chin. And mm -hmm. I was like a little self-conscious about- everything. I was self-conscious about mm -hmm. like my hair and I noticed I looked different from everybody else. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I also knew that they were speaking in a language that I grasped, but I like really couldn't vocalize. So it was like, I was like, oh, I know this language. I don't really speak it commonly in my house. My hair looks different than everyone else. I can like feel the pink lotion like emanating off of me. Like <laughs> just, uh, just the gradual realization of how different 
I was to my classmates. And even when I liked or like had little crushes in kindergarten and I would compare myself to the other like little girls, like one of my ended up being one of my good friends. She had like lily white hair and very blue eyes. And Mm. I remember watching or coming up upon her like hanging out with the boy I liked. And he also had like very green or blue eyes and like brown hair. And I was like, they're just match made in heaven. And like, they look perfect. Like for your car, I was like, oh, he's mine. But I, I like realizing like they like they look the same and I look mm-hmm. very different. And so maybe the same is the way it's supposed to be, you know, like, hmm. and I, and I, I like reiterated that with my Barbies. I separated my Barbies in between like the white Barbies and the black Barbies and the black Barbies didn't live in as nice as a home as the white Barbies. They lived in, in a lesser home, which was also disturbing. I realized as I got older, how weird you it was. You did that at home. I did that at home. Oh, wow. I remember like, first I had them all like integrated. And then as I, I was like, actually, this is not how, this is not the world I see them in. Like I see mm. that the, like they have a different space. And so I had them in, in like the apartments on the side. And my Barbies had these very like, you know, this apart, like this almost like townhouse mm-hmm. little mansion, which is really made up of like shelves. And so there are all these <laughs> like little vignettes for me. I was like, oh, like clearly I perceive that blackness means that you have less money. Being black means that you are not as desirable or you don't really fit because you look different, um, that you are late, that you are, because I was late to kindergarten also, like late and you start late, that then there was like the whole language aspect. So there was all of these predisposed belief systems that I was creating for myself without even having conversations with my parents. Like I didn't vocalize any of this. I'm um, okay. and And I'm sure my sister and parents picked up on some things, but a lot of that was in private. I didn't tell them that these people work very right. busy lives. So like they they were just like she's healthy. She's doing well. Like we're going to keep going. You know, right. like it's fine. Like let's keep it going. So yeah. Right, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Your parents were like, "Okay, we're doing we're doing well enough." Yeah. <laughs> Keeping her alive. Yeah. Um do you remember what you might have been picking up from them and where you were or and or where you were picking up these associations based on race and Mm -hmm. color, like from where you were picking it up. I knew that there was an issue with the fact that I wasn't speaking English as well as all the other kids that Mm -hmm. I, and so I was actually, as opposed to moving up with my class, they kept me back for like a semester. And I was really upset about it because I was in the, in the meeting with my mom and my teacher walking around as they were talking and they're like, she's doing great. It's just like, she needs to be at a a higher level. So already I'm like, okay, that's Mm -hmm. one thing. Um, To this day, I tell my mom and mom and dad that I'm really my mom. And she's like, this was not a big deal. A lot of kids were in that space. You just like, this is what they said. And like, we did what was necessary. And you ended up in the exact same place as everyone else. That that was just, Mm -hmm. you know, what happened. Um, And then. But there was a social separation. There was a social separation. And that's like really intense at that age. Oh, yeah. Social separation. And then another aspect was the fact that my parents were, you know, they were doing like well enough. But I went to private school my entire life. Uh, So there were definitely most of the kids are upper middle class and or if not upper class or they're coming from money. And so I kept internalizing that like I am poor. I like clearly not as smart as everyone else because I'm not in the same glass. And and then I'm not like seen as as pretty enough. Uh, and mm. it, it was it was from the outside looking in, no one would have picked up on that again. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but I didn't feel it on a day-to-day basis. And, and you don't forget those feelings. Like I still struggle right. with that enough factor that like, oh. is my apartment cute enough? Is my, is my job good enough? Is what I'm doing enough? Is all these other aspects of me at the place of other people around me? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of mm-hmm. shitty. So <laughs> yeah. And to have it cement, I mean, I, I get it. I think I, that resonates a lot with me, but to have it cement is so at such an early mm-hmm. age. Is, and it's interesting to me as well that you know, you're looking at this boy and girl and you saw them being looking a lot more similar. And so you almost, it was like a self-segregation or a self-marginalization where you're like, well, I, I wouldn't be the one that would be attractive to this boy because I don't look like that. Mm-hmm. Like, were you getting that from anyone else? No, but I do remember that although I was feeling lesser, they were also like, oh, she is smart. And like, she's clearly very like capable and very intelligent. Uh, I would also yeah. say that in my own house, like when I there were things that I struggled with, my my parents would just be there to like continually like support. Like when I did end up going to all girls school, uh, I, my writing wasn't up to to par, so I got a tutor. I had so much shame about this tutor, and before that, I'd had a math tutor too, and I had so much shame about it. Even though these tutors were reference references from my friends who also had them, who were white, who were oh. like, "Oh, we're struggling." Like, they're like, we're struggling. My parents are like, she needs a little help. I was like, great. Now there's another strike against me. And I do think that it is like a representation of how our society sees the black and brown community. Like the hustle to like get into like the rat race to be at the same level as a white person is is like almost so unimaginable for many that you're like, when will I ever be at the same place? When will I ever be equal? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this need to like, to already exhibit perfection. Oh, yeah. I will say that came from my parents, though. The perfection thing. And I think that's like an immigrant parent thing. They're like, do your best. Do your absolute best. And that's all we ask. And if you're not doing your best, then that's a problem because your education is not cheap. (laughs) They're like, we we put you here for opportunities that we feel that you will – will make you a more successful person so we didn't come for you to not do your best uh right but there's this like imply it's not even that they're implying it but you take the burden on yourself of of this idea that doing your best also has to be the best oh yeah absolutely absolutely it was like a or no a and if there was something (laughs) less it was a question yeah, they're like, well, you can you can hang out with your friends, but like, I like how are your grades in all your other classes? Mm-hmm. Like, and they wouldn't keep me from seeing my friends altogether, but they would say like, if you're struggling with something, like, why don't we work on that as opposed to playing? Which huh. I think that just creates children who are always working and don't know how to rest and to like rejuvenate. Because I feel like I'm always going, and I, I struggle to sometimes just take time to rest and to like and to do other things that aren't about being productive. Wow. You're speaking my truth. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 so important to rest and I yeah. feel exhausted and I realize it's because I feel shame if I haven't done X amount. And do you think that that's because of you know kind of this immigrant mentality or do you think that's because of being black in america i think it's both or both 
I think it's both. I think for being black in America, you're, as I said, you're always not enough. And then the immigrant mentality is you need to be more than enough. So you get hit with it twice and that is exhausting. I think it's, it's, it's exhausting. It's so exhausting. What I hear you saying is that this kind of deeply ingrained sense of I'm, am I enough or I'm not enough is both about race as, and culture. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I realized that when I second guess and third guess and fourth guess myself, that my friend who is a black female, she'll second guess herself, mm. but she's not going, she's not going to the third and to the fourth. Yeah. So, so what did you get at home? Like what, how did your family talk about race? How did they talk about identity? Race I just feel like for Africans, because Africans in Africa, and, and I, I will say most importantly, like, or most specifically, like West Africans or Ghanaians, they're coming from a place in which they were the majority, you know, blackness mm -hmm. in, in that concept wasn't something where they saw as lesser than, although colonialism did create hierarchies in which they were always seen as lesser than, but for themselves, like that wasn't an issue. I think at home, mine, it was very important that my parents, for them, like I ate Ghanaian food. I respected my elders. I tried my best and did my best. Um, and also was not like a black American. Um, they called me the Texan jokingly, kind of like in a pejorative way. I was like, this is messed up. So identity yeah. around Ghanaian-ness was really important um, as like, a Ghanaian American child who was the only Ghanaian in her like schools typically always, that was harder because I spent so mm -hmm. much time at school. So mm -hmm. a lot of that identity, I feel like my like blackness, I had to find through like group contacts. Like I did um, like gospel choir in high school, which is where mm -hmm. a lot of the black women, because I went to all girls school, we're part of. And so we talked about mm -hmm. things like hair and, and boys and dating and all this other stuff and like what was happening in our day to day. So a lot of that context came from, came from school, which is weird because my school is primarily white. Right. So, right. Yeah. And you're saying that's, that was where your cultural context of being a black American came from, mm -hmm. which like you is all you were living in like two different worlds, right? At home, you're Ghanaian. It's all about Ghana, which anyone from on the outside might assume, like, oh, of course it's black. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it's it doesn't center around blackness per se, because everybody's black mm -hmm. in Ghana for the most part. And then outside the home in school, it was more this focus on being a black American in a sea of whiteness. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I remember going to Ghana and and really being immersed in just all the people and the culture and the food and feeling mm -hmm. how wonderful it was, but also that everyone knew everyone's business in Ghana. Everyone had these predisposed beliefs of like what I was and what I was doing. They knew I was an American. Yeah. They knew who my parents were before I opened my mouth. I didn't mm -hmm. like the fact that I was already put into a box and that I mm -hmm. felt like I was constantly trying to define myself as this person within Ghana or, uh, from a Ghanaian family, but, but under the structure of like, I am also like something else. Like you're right. like your whole identity is predetermined. And I knew that from an early yeah. age and I didn't like that. I liked having to rebuild and create my own story, but it is right. a lot of work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, particularly because you know, you're, you come from a Ghanaian household. 
Do you ever talk to your family about Black America? Oh, absolutely. Totally. And what it means for your family, what it means for you, and how that's different from them as, say, Ghanaian. Completely different. The the whole conversation in my family is that Black Americans are different from Africans because mm-hmm. they have been given more opportunities than um, Africans to be successful and to mm-hmm. um, rise to the top. And a lot of the, the common argument or refrain is, if I had as many opportunities, I'd be twice as far and I wouldn't have fought or complained as, as much as Black Americans have. Uh, and I've had this conversation with Nigerian friends, Kenyan friends. Like mm-hmm. our parents all say the same thing. Like you've been given all the opportunities. And mm-hmm. if we had them, we'd be doing three times as much. And mm-hmm. and so in reference to, you know, Black Americans to African Americans, yeah. it's it's often that adage. And it's a very conservative view. It's a very conservative it's a very yeah. black and white view. Um, and not yeah. understanding the context of like how racism plays a part in every culture, but in particularly here. Mm-hmm. It's very it's just very different. So it's how do you grapple with that? How do you sorry, not grapple. How do you confront that or converse about it with your oh, family. Oh, in the beginning, I just, parents. I just, I was quiet. I, I like, there were so many things I argued with my parents about. I was like, I, I am not going here with you. Uh, of late, I've, I've, I've been more vocal. I said that I understand where you're coming from, but what you're not realizing is how is the effect of racism and this type of racism and growing up amongst it. Not to say that you didn't grow up amongst like structures that subjugated you, but it's very different to be torn from your home and then sold and then to like rebuild a culture in in, in society when, in, in, uh, under an umbrella that has consistently seen you as less. There was already societies and cultures built in Africa and in, in civilizations, but it's very different when you are brought and stolen and and then you have to like navigate a structure that is I'll honestly just not for you uh, right. and rebuild and then confront it mm-hmm. and explain like, this is racism and this is how I feel and have people tell you it's not like, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I've had, I've been more vocal now and my mom's like, my mom will often say to me, she's like, I hope you're not feeling downtrodden about this because I want you to know, like you can do what you need to do. It is possible. It's like, yeah, of course it's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just very hard. It is a lot harder. She's like, yeah, it's harder for black people. (laughs) Do they, do you think your parents realize that you're a black American and that you're seen as a black American? Oh yeah, they get it. That's what they call me the Texan. They're like, oh, the Texan. Kyra's the Texan. Parents who call you, your family calls you the Texan. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that wild? (laughs) My my dad's like, well, you're the Texan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm first generation American as well. And for me, it's, like anyone else who I can connect on, I mean, obviously we didn't grow up together or in the same space, but there's this kind of common and shared experience of growing up as American kids, but also having these immigrant parents and and trying to navigate and translate between the two, which was always a constant process. It was different, yeah, not good or bad. Different. It was just different, yeah. And different. at the time, I thought it was bad. Now I just think it's like a superpower. <laughs> You know, being able to translate what people expect 
and also what is allowed and what's not allowed. I feel like it's mm-hmm. need to be a little bit of a cultural chameleon myself. Like being the onlys or one of the few's is a concept that I took with me throughout my adult life uh, until I realized how separatist that feels often and alienating and how you're always hunting for people to understand you. And then when you're in those groups, you realize that you are still distinctive in your own way as Mm -hmm. well. Like there's always something. Right. Uh, Right. But it sounds like, you know, this always, there's always being in this environment where you're the only, it sounds like you were the one almost self-imposing it. Why, why is that? Isn't it wild? I, I, I like always self-imposed it. I lived in Spain and Argentina. I found, Mm. I did found like networks of, of of a black community in both spaces. But I almost feel that I internalized the fact that like I had more power as an only as, as, as opposed to in a large group. I I, I was thinking a lot about this the other day. I was like, I think that it gave me a power of, or in my mind, I was thinking a uniqueness or some sort Uh of star power. Like there's less competition so why the focus on um, immigrants or the diaspora experience in your own podcast? Because I was treated and have always been treated as an immigrant. Um, my 20s were spent living in other countries and everyone always saw me as one. Mm-hmm. So it really resonated with me because I I took in a lot of what my parents dealt with through osmosis and also just through what they would directly tell me about their own immigrant experience. And so that's an mm-hmm. aspect I want to explore more deeply because mm-hmm. it's just different, you know? Mm-hmm. And I have these conversations with my parents because they don't get uh, that, you know, someone doesn't want to have a child. Um, they don't get that, you know, that I, I, you know, that I'm single and happy with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's, it is a whole experience in and of itself, unique from any other group of of children in this country, the first gen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Every single person I talk to who's an, who has immigrant parents, all like same experience, same, different story, same experience. Yeah. Doesn't matter where. Doesn't matter the race. Doesn't matter countries of origin. I, I, I would agree. I would definitely agree. I, I feel like it's so good to share what you're going through because you realize a lot of people relate. Right. To be clear, I'm over the whole enough thing. I'm so done with being the not enough and enough crap. I try every day to not deal with that right. and like reflect on my week as opposed to cramming it with every minute of every hour of doing something. It's just not sustainable. And also reminding myself to like, to treat yourself, enjoy Mm -hmm. like the finer things, whether that's like a piece of cake or a nice walk uh, when it's really nice out in the middle of the day, just finding little things or little gifts that will, I can cherish and I can enjoy and give me time to just breathe, not think, Mm -hmm. not do, just, just be. Thanks for listening to United States of Race. This podcast was produced by me, D.B. Crema. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a one-minute voice memo with any reactions, questions, or stories you'd like to share. 
you can use the app on your phone to record the voice memo and email it to unitedstatesofrace at gmail.com. That's unitedstatesofrace at gmail.com. It might even be included in an upcoming episode. And be sure to hit follow or subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're listening. That way, you won't miss a single moment. Until next time.